1: You're listening to
0: a Mamma Mia podcast. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of land and waters that this podcast is recorded on. From Mamma Mia, hi, I'm Claire Murphy. Welcome to The Quickie, getting you up to speed daily.
1: The announcement early this morning by the FIFA president in Zurich was greeted by huge celebrations here in Sydney. Australia. Australia.
0: That's the response from the Australian and New Zealand combined delegation who put together the bid for the 2023 Women's World Cup. The FIFA president announcing back in June 2020 that we'd knocked out Colombia to win the right to host the event. It's now three years later and the first games are set to kick off in just two months' time. But with Australia facing a cost-of-living crisis and people struggling to make ends meet, is now the right time to be hosting a major world event, an event that costs us millions and millions of dollars to throw. Today, we look at the costs and benefits of putting on the world's largest women's sporting event and whether we'll be paying for it or heralding its success down the track. But first, news headlines for Monday, May twenty-two. The managing director of the ABC has apologised to journalist Stan Grant who's quit as host of their Q&A program. Grant made the decision to leave last week after racism against him intensified in the wake of the broadcaster's coverage of the King's coronation where Grant pointed out that the Crown still represents the invasion and theft of Aboriginal land. The veteran journalist was frustrated that none of the ABC executives had publicly refuted the lies that had been written and spoken about him. ABC managing director David Anderson has agreed with a recommendation from their Indigenous Advisory Committee to review how the broadcaster responds to racism against its staff. Anderson saying reporting from some commercial media outlets had been sustained and vitriolic buy now, pay later schemes will now be regulated under the Credit Act to protect users from financial abuse. The Financial Services Minister Stephen Jones will announce the move today at the Responsible Lending and Borrowing Conference the decision coming after a Treasury paper found in November last year that the services are largely self-regulated, suggesting they should be subject to the same laws as credit card providers, requiring them to adhere to minimum standards for conduct such as responsible lending obligations. There were Reportedly, 7 million active buy now pay later accounts in the 2021 22 financial year, a 37% increase on the previous year, and worth $16 billion in transactions. There are conflicting reports out of the Ukrainian city of Bakhmut that Russia has taken the territory. Ukraine says its forces are still advancing around the edges of Bakhmut, aiming to encircle the ruined city after Russian officials congratulated their Wagner private army and its regular troops for taking control of it. Russia saying it had completely taken the city, which, if confirmed, would make it the end of the longest and bloodiest battle of the 15-month war. However, on Sunday, a top Ukrainian general's Said Kiev's forces still controlled what he accepted was an insignificant part of Bakhmut, although it would allow them to enter the city when the situation changed. Flights have been suspended into the Italian city of Catania after volcano Mount Etna erupted, spewing ash over the area. The airport south of the city was shut down as ash covered the runway. Authorities saying they would resume operations when safety conditions are restored. Mount Etna is one of the most active volcanoes in the world and is also one of the highest in Europe. The men's draw of the French Open is slimming down even further with Andy Murray announcing he also won't be able to play the tournament. The news comes after Nick Kyrgios announced he hasn't yet recovered from knee surgery in time to play and Rafael Nadal last week explained how his hip injury would keep him from playing at Roland Garros for the first time since 2004. The now 36-year-old Andy Murray looks to be protecting his physical health to be fit enough to play Wimbledon where he's won two of his majors on grass. That's latest news headlines in a moment. Today's Deep Dive. Mamma Mia subscribers, you've been asking and we've been listening. Now you can get all of your exclusive subscriber audio on Apple Podcasts. That includes everything from bonus episodes of your favourite pods to exclusive segments to all of our audio series. To link your Mamma Mia! subscription to Apple Podcasts, open the Mamma Mia! Out Loud page in your Apple Podcasts app and follow the prompts or head to help.mamma If you don't know much about the world of women's football, you probably still know about this woman.
1: Catley delivers. It's a good ball in. It's there for Car.
0: And still drives it
1: in towards Kerr, and Sam Kerr pokes the ball home at the
0: near. Post. Good ball. Hard squaring it. Sam Kerr. Of course it is. Sam Kerr, the football legend from Frio in WA and who is again the world Player of the year after scoring in her third FA Cup final win with Chelsea we'll be suiting up in the green and gold to represent Australia with the Matildas come July. It's a tournament of firsts this time around. The first Women's World Cup to be co-hosted by two countries with Australia and New Zealand coming together to put on the event. It's the first Women's World Cup played in the Southern Hemisphere. And for the first time, there will be 32 teams representing their nations. When it was announced back in June 2020 that we would be hosting alongside New Zealand, we were just a few months into the COVID-19 pandemic and we had no idea what 2023 would look like. And I want to really say that Australia and New Zealand will turn it on for the rest of the world and hopefully by 2023 the pandemic will be behind us well and truly and the world will have its eyes focused here uh, on Australia and New Zealand. That's former New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian. But now in 2023, while COVID is still with us and the pandemic is somewhat behind us, we are instead in the midst of a cost of living crisis. Inflation is high, Russia is still at war with Ukraine creating economic issues out of our control, and many Aussies can't put food on the table or a roof over their heads, let alone afford a ticket to a soccer match. And hosting an event like this is not cheap. According to an Oxford University report, on average, it cost those who hosted Summer and Winter Olympic Games between 2004 and 2014 $11.4 billion. And that didn't even include the cost of upgrading infrastructure, like roads, rail lines and airports. But Olympic Games are the most expensive of the sporting events to put on. Canada hosted the Women's World Cup in 2015 – It cost them $216 million. The 2019 event in France cost $156.9 million. France, who won the bid to host the 2025 Rugby League World Cup back in January last year, last week decided to pull out of the agreement, saying despite preparations already underway, they can't guarantee it would be able to make money by hosting the event in the current climate. Australia has been prepping for the Women's World Cup since 2020 and are now considering also putting their hands up to host the rugby league equivalent in France's place in 2025. So with some countries desperate to host and others pulling out due to financial hardships, are we looking at a moneymaker or a white elephant when this World Cup comes to town? Michelle O'Shea is a senior lecturer in sport management at Western Sydney University. Michelle We won this bid to co-host this tournament before the spike in inflation and the cost of living crisis. In your opinion, is it still a good investment for Australia, considering where we're at economically at the moment?
1: Yeah, look, and as you say, you know, two nations, two different confederations co-hosting a World Cup in Australia and New Zealand. So when we won it, it was such a sweet victory after we missed the 2022 men's bid in Qatar as well. And look, the economics of it, even at the time, were somewhat problematic. And indeed, in the lead up to the announcement of Australia's bid win for the Women's World Cup, Brazil actually pulled out some weeks before, and that was very much owing to their concerns about whether or not this really made sense from a dollar and cents perspective. So look, at the time we were in the midst of COVID-19, there were reservations. And certainly, I think those reservations are really being amplified again what now is a post inadverted commas COVID nineteen world. And so yeah, I think that the concerns about the economics of it as we wrestle with inflation are certainly apt.
0: So were you surprised when you heard that France had pulled out of hosting the rugby league World Cup and similar to the reasons that Brazil gave is that they literally just can't afford to do this right now. Does it surprise you that more countries are kind of saying this is just not a good economic choice for us?
1: Yeah, look, that comes as absolutely no surprise. And I think that's a really apt example. And look, even if we look back at Sydney 2000, you know, that was billed to put Australia on the map and that we were going to had these, you know, surge of inbound tourism post the games. But then there are all these other variable factors at play, very often that aren't at government's control. And if we look at Sydney, we had SARS and we had September eleven. So I think certainly it's the unknowns and the unforeseeable, notwithstanding obviously that initial infrastructure investment and all of those monetary injections required. But it's then, well, can we actually guarantee, and we certainly can't, what are being espoused as these often ongoing economic impacts. And I think that's what remains particularly problematic.
0: What about the fact that this is the Women's World Cup and not the men's? Because we know that men's sport gets a lot more money, a lot more coverage. Will we still see benefits from it being a Women's World Cup? Have we seen other countries host this previously? Has it been successful for them?
1: Look, I mean, certainly the economics of women's sport is extraordinary and we have absolutely seen success. Canada, when they hosted the Women's World Cup, five hundred and twenty five million economic gain as stated by their government. Certainly the French, who were the last host in 2019, a three hundred million dollar benefit. So there is an absolute benefit and you know I don't think it's diminished because it's the women's, not the men's gain. But having said that, I'm also cautious about those reported benefits as well, because we do know that, you know, there can be a tendency to overstate the economic impacts owing to the hosting of large-scale events. But certainly, you know, if we're thinking about it in gendered terms, yeah, there's certainly significant economic returns and they're not diminished by any means by virtue of it being a women's as distinct from a men's events. And, I mean, even as we were on the cusp of lockdown, we didn't know what was going to happen the T20 women's cricket was again a sellout. We had a crowd of, you know, near 90,000 people. And so I think that's again a testament to the significant popularity of women's sport and the crowds and the interest that it can engender.
0: How do we actually know how much it's going to cost us? Do we factor in things like upgrading stadiums? Do we include, you know, security and all of the events surrounding it? Like what is actually involved in the cost of putting on a Women's World Cup?
1: Yeah. And so one of the economic rationales that governments use to procure these large scale events and essentially use what is our public money is this idea of increased economic activity. So certainly if we look at the Women's World Cup and we think about the Sydney Football Stadium. It was demolished in 2019, $828 million project. And so that will obviously feed into what essentially is a benefit to hosting the Women's World Cup. So we've got this kind of infrastructure, which might very well not have garnered resources, if not for something like a large scale so I think that's quite important as well. So we often get these upgrades. We often generate infrastructure renewal and development projects off the back of winning a bit. So that can be significant for economies because it creates jobs and it creates the movement of money through the economy. I guess problematically, when we look at something like the Olympic Games, it is often the case that often these kind of styles of investment and venue, they become what are called white elephants. So what's the usage post large-scale mega event? And certainly I think that's been well addressed in respect to the Women's World Cup. So where there has been stadia investment, where there has been money spent, there is certainly a plan for its use post the game. Something worth noting, both the New Zealand and the Australian Confederations in organising this event have not just invested in you know large cities, but there are regional benefits for smaller communities as well.
0: Michelle, what dollar amount did the government say that this was going to cost us back when we were bidding for this as opposed to, and we all know that it's never the number that they give you in the beginning, right? It's like building a house. There's always extras. Do we know how much it's actually cost us up to this point?
1: Yes. So forecast was $460 million social and economic benefit. And just to point out that social, they're often more difficult to quantify And if we could kind of think about it as the quintessential Australian film, The Castle, it's the vibe. And so that idea of that feel-good factor. But this is inherently the issue. We don't know at this point what it will cost. And again, thinking about the bid documents, so top dollar said that we would get a 460 million social and economic benefit. It was said that the estimated cost of running was likely 150 million with 100 million coming from government. So the suggestion was that we would have this net benefit of around $200 million. We don't know what will come. And I think some of the uncertainty around what will likely be the predicted benefit in the end, is very much contingent on inbound tourism. And so there is an argument that with pent-up demand owing to COVID-19, that we might very well see a tourism influx far greater than what we may have anticipated. But then I guess the counter of this is that, you know, we have a depressed economy. We've got inflationary pressures and will it be the case that we don't get that internal domestic spend and certainly tourism movement etc.
0: Now I know there are just an amazing amount of very talented Australian female football players right now but can we quantify in any way shape or form the Sam Kerr effect? The fact that she is playing the way that she is playing, that she's getting the accolades that she is, that she is Australian, that this tournament is in Australia. Can we put any kind of number on just how much she is worth to this tournament coming up?
1: Yeah, look, she is such an extraordinary athlete. And again, she's been named the female footballer of the year. And so, you know, we know that those role models are so important. And we also know that those kind of names obviously drive attendances. So, I think there will be undoubtedly an effect. And I think this is one of the really marvellous, I guess, social or non-economic benefits of hosting something like the Women's World Cup. It is an opportunity to really amplify the on-field success of our athletes, their extraordinary talent. And again, we often refer to what's called the trickle-down effect. So we host a large-scale sport event. We see the Sam Kerr's of the world, and so we see – you know, women and girls inspired to become physically active. Again, there is questionability around that and the research doesn't necessarily accord with that trickle down. Having said that, however, I think that there are obviously some significant legacy plans as it relates to women's football in particular. And they're looking at parity in terms of participation between women and men, girls and boys. So they're looking at this 50-50 split. But there are, as always, these other structural barriers that need redressing. And we do know that culturally women and girls' participation, particularly if we're thinking about grassroots girls, falls off at that puberty age. So, yes, it can engender focus. It, It can be used as a way to leverage increased participation but it's how we, I guess, manage that post the Games and how we keep that momentum going. And I think an important part of that is redressing some of those cultural and structural issues as it relate to women's sport participation and those inequities that we're still seeing.
0: The first 2023 Women's World Cup Games will kick off in both New Zealand and Australia on July 20. And after all the matches play out at 10 stadiums in nine cities across two countries, it will culminate with the final to be played in Sydney on August 20, where we will hopefully hear a few more of these.
1: Van Egmond over the top, Kerr has sprung the defence. Sam Kerr has a double. It's Kerr's header and Sam Kerr scores. Goal number 12 of
0: the year for Sam Kerr and the Matildas. Get the very least that they deserve. But with all the knowledge about how much this event costs and with the current economic climate we're experiencing here in Australia, would Michelle still back it?
1: Look, I think I sort of might refer to some statements that have been made in political circles recently, and I think this is the issue, is that idea of cost-benefit and where the monies might otherwise have been spent. And I think certainly Australians are concerned and rightly and there are so many demands on the public person you know i just reference recent conversations in new south wales in particular around increased investment in stadia and the like and you know when we've got demands in hospitals and we've got demands in schools yeah prioritizing the investment that we've seen in infrastructure prioritising, you know, the time and money spent on these kind of events. I think on balance, in retrospect and hindsight, I think that money could be have better spent somewhere else, really.
0: The Quickie is produced by myself, Claire Murphy, and our executive producer, Callie Borg, with audio production by Tom Lyon. And if there's a news story floating around that you feel you need a little bit more info on, we are here to help. All you've got to do is email your story ideas to thequickie at mamamia.com.au or you can hit us up on the socials. Find us on Instagram and Twitter.